You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And between the ages of six and eight, did your father have sexual contact with you? Yes. Both brothers were calling me occasionally from jail. They said, wait until the trial. You'll find out what was really happening in the Menendez family. Our starting point is that David and I never believed for a moment that they were abused. And what was special about the relationship of the first brother <coughs> and the father? that it was special and that uh, that was really all that mattered was the firstborn and that the sons should do what the fathers say and then they grow up and they, they become like the father and the father teaches them, molds them and, uh, and someday me and my son do the same. And how did it start? Um, it started with, uh, after sports practices, he would massage me, and uh, it, we would have these talks, and he would show me, and he would uh, fondle me, and he would ask me to do the same with him, and I would, I would touch him, and we would undress. Um, Where would this take was, place? In my bedroom. And how often would this happen? Like two or three times a week. And for how long did this happen? Um, not too long. It began to change. When did it begin to change? I'm not sure exactly at what time, but almost close to when I was seven. And how did it change? Just became more involved. Um, what do you mean, more involved? Um, we would be in the bathroom, and uh, um, it would he would put me on my knees and. 
he would guide me all my movements and I would um, uh, have oral sex with him. Do you want to do this? At some point, did he do some other things to you? Yes. Did you ask him not to? Yes. How did you ask him not to? I just told him, I don't, I don't. I just told him that I didn't want to do this and that it hurt me. And he said that he didn't mean to hurt me. And he loved me. Was that important to you, that he loved you? Yes, very. But I still didn't want to do it. Did you tell your mom? Yes. What did you say to your mom? I told her to tell Dad to leave me alone. And he keeps touching me. What did your mom say? She told me to stop it. And that I was exaggerating. And that my dad has to punish me when I do things wrong. And she told me that he loved me. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. This week, I'm once again joined by Professor Amburgis, as we continue our illuminating conversation about the murders of Jose and Kitty Menendez and Professor Amburgess's assessment of Eric Menendez. That was Lyle in the clip giving evidence in the first trial. The full testimony is harrowing and heartbreaking. Jose Menendez normalised the abuse by saying that it was normal for a father and son to do these things, i.e. for a father to rape their son. Lal told him it hurt him. He asked him to stop. And in response, Jose Menendez would tell him that he loved him. That was what Lal and Eric both wanted to hear more than anything, that they were loved. Jose Menendez knew that. He understood vulnerability and manipulated and abused his own boys and dressed it up as normal behaviour whilst rewarding them with what they wanted to hear. I can't tell you how angry-making this is, and I'm sure you feel it too. 
But it's so revealing about how Jose Menendez controlled and manipulated them and how good he was at reading people. You'll hear much more about this in the episode. And as upsetting as it is to hear, it's really important to identify and highlight the tools and tactics of a sophisticated, manipulative and dangerous abuser. Lal and Eric never stood a chance against him. As usual, listener discretion is advised. Okay, with that having been said, let's dive back into this important and illuminating conversation with Professor Ann Burgess. I talked with the juror, with, with Hazel Thornton, and she, oh. you know, we went back and forth about what she understood about the case and the experts. And she said she had the, a tremendous education at the trial by you and others about sexual abuse. And it was a real eye opener. And she said, you know, it was just incredible to hear the, the detail from the experts about trauma and the impact. And for her, I mean, she was called all sorts of names by the male jurors because she had a clear view on what had gone on. And, you know, the abuse that Eric suffered and the fact that other family members testified to that yeah. abuse and saying that they weren't allowed near the bedroom. If Eric was in the bedroom with um, Jose, they weren't allowed to go anywhere near the bedroom. All these rules were laid down. And she just said she heard not just from the experts, from, but from family members and from teachers. And it was very, when she heard from the boys themselves, she said it was very plausible that how could she not believe what was said? It, it all corroborated and therefore, right. she felt that this was very much a manslaughter case. And she said, you know, with the sexual abuse, and it was interesting because she said, you know, quite a lot of it was behind the closed door of the bedroom. And we think about that. And I went back and looked at pictures and I found this picture of both the boys sat on Jose Menendez's lap. And he had pulled both boys. Oftentimes with that particular shot, you see from the waist up, so you don't see the legs and you don't see the fact that both boys are pulled into his genitals and he has his fingers cupped around Lyle's genitals. And then his hand interclasped over the top and Lyle is staring defiantly down the camera. And it's his look that mm. made me look down there because I wondered why he, he looked like five years old. Why would a five-year-old look so defiant for the picture yeah. And his genitalia is being cupped by Jose Menendez and he has this smirk on his face and Lyle is clearly incredibly uncomfortable. Sure. So for me, it wasn't behind closed doors. Other people saw it, but sometimes you don't know what you're seeing. But we know paedophiles, I don't like that word, but we know, you know, sex offenders will do things like that and will groom in plain sight and will normalise the abuse almost as a... Other people can see it and they're not doing anything and they're just normalizing what they're doing. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't realize there was a photo like that. But the other thing is you can imagine how Lyle felt that he couldn't say anything and he had to just stand there and take it or sit there and take it because they were told they couldn't mention this. The, the other thing, and I don't know how much this went on, is that sometimes a lot of boys are told this is what fathers do. You know, the, is they try to normalize it. And Jose could well have said this is the way you bring up children, you know, or something along that line so that uh, they would then be confused as to really was it abuse. And we find that with a lot with um, male victims, that they're told something that's uh, obviously wrong, 
but they try to incorporate to make it more normal. The other thing I was going to say on the issue of greed and money and all that, you know, the uncle was the estate uh, manager. Anything that they spent had to go through him. So I don't, you know, he was okaying everything. You're talking about post-defense after it oh, happened and, yes. and money was being spent. Right, because they tried to say, oh, they bought all these watches and they bought this and the car and that and so forth. And the other thing is sometimes money like that is for what they went through. It wasn't for necessarily for themselves. They gave away the watches. I remember hearing that he had bought these. So I think that there was a lot that could have been countered in terms of the prosecution trying to say this is all greed and money and so forth. But they were out to get them. I I, uh, I understand on the second trial that the experts were re, re, um they weren't allowed to bring up the abuse issue in any great detail, I guess. Yes, it was highly limited by Judge Stanley Weisberg, which I spent a lot of time looking at Judge Stanley Weisberg to understand why he would make that decision. Oh, good. Yeah, I found it very curious. Well, what I discovered was that he had a series of cases himself that went south. And, you know, one of those cases was the McMartin preschool case. And that was one of his. He also had the Rodney King case that... where the LAPD officers were acquitted. And of course, there were riots and people were killed. And there was a lot of money uh, as well that had to go into because of the riots. And he was seen as a problem in that case. And then there were other cases that he had where a similar case, Ricky Lyle, who had killed his father, and he thought that he was a prosecutor, the prosecutor in that case, he thought that that would be a murder conviction. And it wasn't. It was a manslaughter. And he was not very happy about that. And then, of course, you had the Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman case with O.J. Simpson. And that happened just before the second trial. And and I believe that given all of these things happening, it's this perfect storm of Mm -hmm. making a determination that this was going to be a case where they were successful in a conviction, the DA's office and Judge Stanley Weisberg, I believe there were some biases that came in because I found it difficult to understand why he would hear from 51 witnesses and Lyle and Eric and hear the testimonies from experts like yourself and John Conti and, and decide not to allow most of the evidence and history of abuse, but to limit it and then not to allow the full defence that Leslie was using. I mean, for right. me... the how that happened, and of course that's being looked at now by mm-hmm. the district attorney's office. They have another 90 days, I believe, oh, to examine good. whether a decision was taken to exclude evidence. And Excellent. Oh, thank you. I didn't understand that. Well, I, that's very interesting about uh, um, Judge Weisberg. I, I appreciate learning that. I didn't know all of those cases. I, that, that does make some sense in terms of his behavior because that was really un, unheard of. I understand he even said, do not take, I think, my testimony as gospel. I think of one of the lawyers I, I was on a show with. So that's pretty strong to say to a jury. It was, and he said that, his instructions... Yeah, yeah, you're not supposed to pick out any. So he was afraid of that as a theory that we had. Yes, yeah. which, you know, you're not meant to pick out a specific no. expert. It's for the jury to decide and give weight to what they believe is important. Right. 
So I believe he did overstep. And the fact that he said it's not a PTSD trial and he didn't want to deal with the minutiae of the first trial. And these statements are loaded. So yeah. I hope that the DA's office, George Gascon's office, are thoroughly reviewing and investigating because David Conn, who was also the prosecutor in the second trial, he talked to the abuse excuse in inverted commas and he said the abuse was total fabrication and the silliest story he had ever heard told in a court. Oh my golly. Wow. Well, I hope they take that into consideration because as you said, they've been in there for over 30 years. It's certainly unfair for other types of cases like this that uh, they would and not to have uh, permission to have parole. I think that was the thing is not to allow it to be. They didn't have any a chance, any chance. I think it's rather remarkable of how they have done in, in prison. Actually, I think Eric said one of the quotes from Eric was he felt relieved to be in prison, that the stress had been so great and the stress was, uh, I wanted to say how regimented these brothers were. They had every minute, Jose controlled every minute that he, they were there. You know, they just had to get up. They had to, you know, eat breakfast a certain time, go practice, go to school, come home from school, practice. Uh, so they didn't have much time to themselves to even develop any kinds of thought, thinking to it. Um, the other point I wanted to make is in the trial, I did say that when you have high emotion, you have low thinking. When you have high thinking, you have low emotion. And those brothers were so emotional about this whole last week, the timeline issue, that they, they were not thinking clearly. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Can you explain? I think they're very important points. Can you explain the toupee incident? Because that's not something I've explored, but I do know, I know what happened. But I, and I think it's a very important thing that happened for Lyle and for Eric within that timeline. Right. Because Eric was the uh, witness that, and it was in the, if I remember the, in the foyer of, the, of this home, which was a lovely home. And the mother and Lyle got into a really a, um, a verbal argument 
And that's when she goes over and actually pulls. He he wore a toupee. He was uh, balding quite early because he was only, what, 22, 23. And she grabs it off and throws it down and humiliates him with, see, you even have to, you know, your something about his hair. And Eric, it was such a shocking thing to see a mother go and, and try to, you know, t- to dismantle this thing on his head. And he was heartbroken, I think, over that because he thought that that was a good thing, that he was trying to look good and so forth. And for her to have humiliated him, that was a major, major uh, issue that when they talk about the mother was not going to side with the brothers or protect them, that that was, and in incest cases, that can happen. So they that was another, just another example uh, what side is mom on and does she really care about us? She wouldn't do that to a son. To, yeah. yeah. And I think in that conversation, the boys finding out that she knew all along, because yes. I think yeah. that they were trying to tell her, weren't they, about the abuse and what had happened, what had predated that as Eric had lost a tennis competition and Jose was really angry and they came home early. And yeah. Kitty's father who had been abusive to her mother and to her, he was dying from cancer and it meant that she didn't get to see her father and say goodbye. They came home early. Eric was then sent to his room, which was code for, go to your room, I'm going to abuse you. And then there's a confrontation and Eric for the first time stands up to him. But meanwhile, there's a confrontation, I think, between Lyle and Kitty. And within that, Eric appears and sees that this confrontation between Lyle and Kitty is happening and the toupee is pulled off. So you kind of got these double revelations at the same time of the hair. What was going on in Kitty's mind for her to do such a thing? You know, what, what buttons sort of got, what are the dynamics that got played out there? So it was a very volatile kind of situation. And I think the brothers never really stood up and said anything. And they were now beginning to do that because it was August. They were getting, there's going to be another change. College was coming, school, all of that. And uh, to have that experience with the mother, that was just one more. They could put up with the father, but not with the mother. And she knew about, the, they, they realized she knew about the abuse. And, and she told them. And I, I think that was the final straw. Although there were these multiple things, it's the final straw knowing that she knew and did nothing to stop it. And I, I was interested in her, not to blame the mum, because oftentimes when you get a coercive controller like Jose Menendez, who was most likely a psychopath, I haven't diagnosed him, but I would imagine if you did do the psychopathy checklist speaking to many who knew him, he would probably score quite highly given the traits that people have described. But Kitty was also humiliated and abused by him. And apparently he had raped her and Lyle had walked in and that he had made it clear that she should be humiliated and punished in front of the boys because that's what men of the house, men of the household do. So you've got this very confusing set of dynamics going on, which is what a coercive controller does. They confuse and they create these divide and conquer rules so that there's isolation and people aren't talking to each other and they come out on top, normally through fear. So I think for Kitty, she was desperate to keep her family together because her father had abused her, her mother, and then left. And she at all costs wanted to keep the family together. And Jose knew that. He knew each of their biggest fears, their biggest 
things that they didn't want to have happen. And he exploited those things. And Kitty, I just want to read two quotes from two letters that might interest you, which I found interesting. She wrote to Jose, throughout my life, I lived with a tormented mother who bared her soul to me. And I could always feel her hurt, but was so powerless to help her except by showing her strength. I lived in a broken home and knew of no other like mine. I swore this would never happen to me that she would never have that broken home. And then she said, this was another quote from a letter, which I I think is interesting. I'd be interested to hear your view. She said, for 24 years, I lived a dream. I tried so hard to keep my marriage complete, but didn't know how. I thought if I concentrated on the house and our boys, the grades and the sports, that you would be fulfilled. My fantasy about you and I and our family was my own destruction I locked myself into a dream that began in my childhood. I married a man just like my father in disguise, the very man I tried to run away from. Oh, that's very, very interesting. Yes, I would say um, she's getting some insight. I think at this point, after what, 24 years she's got, or however long the relationship was, she does see the, the parallels there. I think she was in some, she did have some treatment. I think she was in therapy. So maybe that's at a point where she is getting some insight. She also had, uh, as I understand, that certainly had some alcohol problems and maybe some prescription pills addiction that the the brothers would see her perhaps not in the best of condition. I, I remember they they quoting on that, but still wouldn't talk badly about them. I mean, there was that that need to keep the the um, family's reputation and the way people saw it very intact as much as they could. I think it also explains that if she wasn't going to let anything disrupt her marriage. That's why she wouldn't go with them to the East Coast when they were asked. So uh, I think that's very revealing. Mm, at at so, all costs, because he was yeah, having all these all affairs. Costs, right, right. Yeah. And I think understanding her psychology, the alcohol, the medicating, the self-medicating to cope, and she was out of it a lot of the time, the numbing because of what was happening. And I think she was jealous of the boys. You know, when the boys came along and Jose spent all this time and it's this really very distorted and difficult set of emotions to understand because it is dysfunctional, but you've got a coercive controller like Jose Menendez at at the top of the tree almost like with multiple puppets, pulling everybody's strings. No. Well, I think that that's the other thing that she she had to um, had to deal with. So I think that she was so controlled by by Jose that she couldn't do anything. You know, that that we have to take that into consideration. And she didn't have that was her whole life. Where the the brothers, the other thing for the, from their standpoint is they both brothers would, this is the first time both would be out of the house, so to speak, except for Eric, of course. And and Jose wanted to keep him in, but they were becoming um, adult and that whole thing of this is what the men do. So there's your misogyny in a certain way that women are there just to serve in a certain way. Yeah. And the control. I mean, they didn't even have a house key. The boys didn't have their own key to open the house and they lock them out. All these things that just tell you about the power imbalance. So I can understand why they saw Kitty as part of the problem, that final straw, when she knew all along and they didn't know that. They were trying to protect her, I would imagine, because a lot of kids do that. They try and protect their mother. But it's a a very 
disturbing set of circumstances. And I, for me, I just felt when I first looked at the case and I read Rob Rand's book, he covered the, the case right from the start, that this was a spectacular safeguarding failure, actually, that there were multiple people who understood that there was abuse going on and they looked the other way. Maybe they didn't feel equipped to deal with it. And Jose Menendez did say to um, his sister's husband um, when he had punched Lyle in front of them, and Lyle was five at the time, he said, it's my house, my rules, my sons, and if you don't like it, get out. And that's what they did. They left. And I just feel for the boys. They knew with their mother it was the last straw because no one was going to intervene and help them. No one. And if their own mother didn't, who else is going to? They had no one else. They had no one else. That was their, and, and that's the ultimate issue they had to face. They couldn't deal with him. He, his, his control was so powerful, in, at least in their minds. Then the one way they would break it, of course, is to come out with the uh, secret. And yet they couldn't do that. Yes. Breaking the, the secret. Well, now, many years later, we're all hearing about the things that you heard about at the time. And, right. you know, I'm really pleased that the do new documentary has come, come out, the Men Menendez and Menudo, Boys Betrayed. And I've spoken to Rob, not on the podcast, because That's there's lots of things going on, but, you know, there are others coming forward, which is, you know, really helpful to the case. And Roy Rosello has been a key part of that you know, disclosing Excellent. what happened to him. And then, of course, the evidence of the letter. So there is more evidence. And I know you spoke with Wendy Murphy and, and others. Yeah. And, you know, there's a number of lawyers, not just Mark Geragos, but Cliff as well, who's been working on sure. the case for some time to ensure that that evidence in the habeas petition is clear. And that's why I think the work you do is fantastic. And us being able to talk about it as experts, talking about how that secret was maintained for so long. For me, it was a safeguarding failure, you know, a spectacular yeah. one, and then a miscarriage of justice. Um, I'm yes. not saying that murder's right, and I think we both yeah. agree murder's not the right answer, but when you are hopeless and helpless and you fear for your own life, then anything is possible. And that you didn't feel there was anybody you could go to. I think that's the other thing. That's where the helpless part comes in, is that it, it's fighting it's a David and Goliath to some extent of, of what can they do. Uh, and would people have listened to them? You know, would they have? People can talk about abuse and people don't believe it still. Yeah. Well, look so, what happened at the trial. Abuse excuse. Yes. So maybe they were right in thinking no one would take them seriously. Well, and they uh, they did a very uh, they used that abuse excuse as and would joke about it. And any time that you get uh, the humor piece in there, I always worry because uh, and that was um, Alan Dershowitz that I often wondered what whether he's had, ever had any clients that have been traumatized or abused because he always talked about the abuse excuse. I think he's the one that gave him the the language. Well, um, think about who he normally represents, the, yeah. the abuser and the person yeah, who's been true. accused. That's so true. he sees it from one end of the telescope and right. we're the ones trying to course correct. But as you know, it's who's got the microphone, isn't it? Who, who's got the loudest yeah. voice? That's right. That's, that's the problem. Um, when is the 90 days up that you said that they are, you're hopeful that something will come out? So that came out. Let me just see. Because it came out, I think, in May. It did. And then there was a statement that was put out just recently on two days ago. 
that they oh, asked for okay. another 90 days. Oh, they asked, the prosecution asked for another, or the appeal. Yeah, mean? George Gascon's office. Okay. So the, the, the DA starts now, so we're looking at not until fall. Yeah. yeah. So they clearly are taking it seriously. I, I think that's a positive thing, that they are yes. clearly looking into it. I mean, for me, it seems very evident what happened. And even the prosecutor said, you know, that that's what they did. And David Conn even said that on camera when he was interviewed about the result of the conviction. You know, he said that he was glad that justice was done and that the abuse excuses ridiculous story that was told, that total fabrication. He said he was glad that Judge Stanley Weisberg and the jurors made the right decision. But of course, the jurors, some of them spoke out afterwards and said, had they have known what they had known at the penalty stage about the abuse, they would have made a different decision. That speaks volumes to me. It does. It does. And I think the new evidence or the new alleged evidence, whatever you want to call it, is uh, exactly what would have been very helpful at the time of the first trial. I think that would have made the, the case. Absolutely. I was going to just quickly try and find what David Conn said specifically as I tracked all of these individuals of just, you know, what they said because I found it so interesting the way that the prosecution team behaved at the second trial. I've never seen anything like that. The, to me, it they just... It or they left them out. I hope they get a comment from these others that had talked that way. Yeah, and this is what he said, actually. I've got the direct quote here. Oh, he okay. said, after the sentence had been handed out, he said, it's very gratifying to see that justice was done in this case. Judge Weisberg did his job by keeping out trivial accusations. Mm. Trivial accusations, wow. So powerful that they uh, created the, the case, wow. Very interesting. We'll see what he says if if, if there's a change, if they're allowed. Uh, I think they, they don't want another trial. They are hoping that it can be time served. That's right. You'd have, yeah, you'd have to change the, you'd have to change something, right? I mean, a third trial doesn't sound right to me. They've been put through enough. They've no. served 33 years. If it were a manslaughter case, they would have served their time by now. Um, so, And I think the biases do need to be looked at because at the OJ, with OJ Simpson, there was never the death penalty put on the table. But yet for a 21-year-old, an 18-year-old, they put the death penalty on the table. And I just think the whole context must be looked at, not just the decisions taken, you know, in, in the micro of the case. I mean... It really was confounding to me anyway of why certain decisions were taken. But then when I looked at the big picture, things became a bit clearer about the political nature of those decisions. Yeah, a very interesting case. Yeah. I wonder how they're feeling about it. Have you yes. tried to talk with Eric or Lyle? I mean, through Three Robert Rand, yes. And I know Rob went to see Lyle, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, and I've sent on my support and, oh, you know, I've asked if there's anything that I can do to assist because of the coercive control element. That's something that's new that they could also use to explain, oh, have sure. an expert explain coercive control. So, yes, I mean, I'm fully supportive. I, I wonder, have you heard, have you spoken to any of the team, to Leslie or Eric or I, any I of them? I have spoken to Leslie. I have spoken to Leslie and I've communicated with her because I really wanted her to, I was curious what, 
and this has been a, a few months ago, just to see where she was at. And her husband, her ex-husband died. And so she's been really caught up with, with that. So it hasn't been an easy time for her. I'm hoping that she would talk now if anything changes. Definitely. I have not been in touch with either Eric or Lyle. So I would love to. Maybe you'll have host uh, several of us come on and talk if there is any change in the uh, the outcome. I would love to do that. And, you know, please extend my best wishes to Leslie. I thought she did a fantastic job under very difficult circumstances, and it must have been incredibly frustrating for her to want to advocate and do her best, but just have her hands tied behind her back. But what a fierce advocate. And for the first time, the boys had someone in their corner and that they needed that far earlier on. She's quite an attorney. so An incredible woman. Yes, she is. You should have her on sometime. She could. Tell I would love to. No, she would be. I bet she would do it. If, if this all turns, let's see how it all turns out. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Yes. Well, I think there's a lot of people waiting to see what happens in in the 90 days. And people are, you know, the lawyers are cautiously, you know, optimistic as as always, because there's been a lot of water under the bridge and you never know where people go with their decisions. But precedent, do we know of any any other cases California has had? Well, there's just been a release of um, in the Manson case, Leslie Van Houten. She's just been paroled. Okay, well, there, that's one. Okay. So that is, I think, good in terms of the fact that she has been paroled after all these years and Gavin Newsom didn't protest it, which he has in the past. So we'll see. I, I, I feel optimistic, I have to say. I think now there is this groundswell of people saying that we now understand abuse better and... You know, experts like you have done a fantastic job of educating society by writing your books, by writing articles, by presenting and teaching TV shows now, you know, presenting what trauma looks like in in some productions, not right. all. Right. 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 But the zeitgeist is different now. We understand even coercive control. It's a criminal offence in the UK, That's in each... Good for you, yes. And, and in Australia. We don't pay enough attention to the stalking. We need to educate people about the criminal and what his behaviors are so that they can understand them. A lot of people, we used to say, oh, this, they were strangers, victim and offender were strangers. Well, no, we are now learning that the offender knows the victim, not personally, or may have just said hello to her because they were in a store together, something like that, but has been stalking and keeping them under surveillance and building up his fantasy and then acting out on it. So... Absolutely. That surveillance. 
I spend a lot yeah. of time in those cases and I could speak to you for a very long time. And I'm sure, well, I would love to have you come back on Crime Analyst and talk about some other cases as well. And I'm conscious of your time. So I just want to say thank you so much for your work. Please name a couple of your books as well for my listeners and I'll oh, make sure they're um, in the show oh, notes. Great. Yeah. The one is uh, Killer by Design and that's a, a book on profiling. I worked with the profiles and tried to understand how they would go to a crime scene and profile there and ma imagine how good they were. Incredible. So that's a killer by design. And then uh, the crime classification manual was certainly one. And I have um, a sixth edition of my rape investigation, which I write specifically for law enforcement. So I'm going to, I certainly will be putting this case in as an example. And the other case, I don't know if you followed it here in this, is the uh, Gabby Petito case. And the, that's a, an incredible domestic violence case that I think it, it needs to be told. Um, I have covered it in 23 episodes on Crime Analyst. I went through every part of the police body-worn camera footage and gave my expert analysis of each excellent each part well, we, to it. Well, what we have, I have uh, one of my PhD students, they have run focus groups with FBI agents, a group of FBI agents with a group of just law enforcement, a group of nurses, and a group of crisis workers. And we're looking at the difference and the similarities in how they view that body cam, you know, that one scene. To Fascinating. See how different, they, through what lens they look at. So we're working on that. I think it's a very educational case. It's a horrible Absolutely. case. Oh, awful. But um, but there's no intervention. There was no one. Nobody picked it up. Yeah, where there were so many points through language and behaviour where it could have been picked up, how dysregulated she was, and each time him trying to manipulate the officers into his point of view and gaslighting and talk, devaluing her. There were just so many moments across that 75 minute, which you don't normally get 75 minutes in a stop like yeah. that, and on two different body-worn cameras, which I took both of them apart. And you know, everything that happened thereafter. And I agree with you. And it's such an important learning tool, a learning tool for intervention and prevention for future Gabbies. And I know her family feel very strongly that we try and intervene and prevent in future cases. And they believe very strongly in accountability. You know, it's a great responsibility that people have when they are being called to yeah. a domestic violence. I'm not calling it an incident because it's normally a pattern when they get called out to assist and 16 to 24 year olds are most at risk and particularly when there's coercive control. Absolutely. That's a good term, coercive control. Uh, they had a pattern in that case. Remember that the little uh, coffee shop and that incident there, then they get in the car and the police are called. And um, so there, there's a lot of teaching from that uh, that we're going to, uh, I'm glad you did your program on that. I don't know if you're following it. Is the Delphi murders? The uh, two Libby little, and Libby and yeah Abigail, two, isn't it? Yeah, I mean uh, they've got a suspect, but I'm I'm really he just doesn't fit for some reason. I think they uh, they had other suspects that I fit, thought fit better, but uh, they've got this Richard Allen, so we'll see what happens. Yeah, and yeah. I think you've spoken out about the Idaho Four as well, haven't oh, you? Yes, Which I've Brian spent Ford. quite a bit of time yes. in. Yes. Yeah. That's again, that's a, a blade case, and uh, it's it, four young people all at once. 
horrific. Really horrific. But whoever he is, without the BK of it all, as I always say, a predatory stalker is the profile of the person going into the house. So when when you break down the behaviours, as we know in the timeline, normally victimology, there'll be one who's the primary victim that he's targeting. But perhaps we'll talk about that another time. Because I know I've kept you. Wonderful talking with you. And uh, I look forward to any way I can help. Yes, and, uh, and vice versa. If there's anything yeah. I can do to assist you, then then please let me know. And you can listen to some of the crime analyst episodes. I know you're super busy and you may not have time, but no, I would I love... I can always get my students to watch. Yes, and to listen because it's a great maybe, learning tool. Right, and maybe we can get Leslie sometime. I'd love to see you interview her. That would be incredible. That would make my year. It would, make, it would be good for her too. A fierce okay. advocate. Well, thank a fierce you advocate. So much, Laura. Okay, thank you. Time. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. I'm jumping in here to wrap the episode and interview with Professor Anne Burgess. As you could probably tell, I could have talked with Anne all day long. We share some cases in common, Gabby Petito being one of them, and a second, the Idaho Four. I'll definitely ask Anne back on, and I hope that you found this interview as interesting as I did. Now, I know many of you have written to me and said how this series has really challenged what you thought you knew about the case, and I really appreciate you being open-minded and listening and understanding the actual facts of the case and then writing to me to let me know the impact that it's had on you. But I'm not finished just yet. There's more to come. Next week, I interview Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and producer Maggie Freeling, and you won't want to miss it. Until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.